uh, I want to say that uh, this is uh, this particular message on uh, the uh, the covenants will take us into a, a number of different passages. So we're not in Hebrews uh, currently. Uh, we're we're outside. So I want you to be at the ready with your Bibles because we do want to look at a few things, uh, different passages from the Old Testament. Forgive me in advance if, uh, if I go so, somewhat rapidly through this, uh, but um, uh, there, there's much to cover. So uh, let me begin by saying that um, as spring will be upon us soon, we will be celebrating Easter before we know it. Um, I think Tony made some remark to, to that. Still a, a major holiday in America, Easter. wonder how long that'll last. Maybe not too long. Who knows? Even though it's been thoroughly stripped of, of its spiritual meaning, I think it's really a, a time off from work and an excuse to, to eat lots of food and, and it's the extended family and, and give kids an opportunity to hunt for chocolate eggs and, and uh, that come from the Easter bunny. Of course, eggs and, and bunnies have nothing to do with Christ and the resurrection. We know that. But this is America. And uh, we can make holidays mean anything we want and get rich while we're at it. There are, there's lots of money to be made from the sale of chocolate eggs and bunnies at this time. But besides, they, they keep the kids busy, right? So what are you complaining about? Just, just stop being a killjoy and enjoy the spiral ham. It's also a time when you expect to see classic movies on the Bible that were really masterpieces of cinematography of their time. You know, the Ten Commandments, The Robe. In 1965, producer and director George Stevens put out The Greatest Story Ever Told. Do you remember that one? You've got it, you, you, you have to have seen it at least a thousand times if you were born before 1970. It's about the life of Jesus of Nazareth, from his nativity right to his ascension, with Max von Sydlow as Jesus. That was a big deal back then. This title is what really, though, interests me, not so much the cinematography or how advanced they were for their time. The title, the greatest story ever told. Is it? Well, it's about Jesus, so how could it not be the greatest story ever told? God come in the flesh. Well, I don't mean to be sacrilegious, of course, and suggest in any way that the true story of our Lord is not great. It is. But we could be more accurate, I think. The incarnation from birth to ascension is really part of the climax of the greatest story ever told. The story has more to it than Jesus' life. The story really begins in eternity past with the Trinity and what God ordains and the counsel of his will, and it ends with triumphant Messiah handing over the kingdom to God the, the Father, and Messiah himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be in all. If we want to be precise, we... We really need to say that Jesus' life is the most significant part of the greatest story ever told. Now, we've been talking about the greatest story ever told. We've been telling it the past couple of, of weeks. We started in eternity past where, where God the Father makes a covenant 
with God the Son to redeem a people for himself by means of the shed blood of the Son and the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit so that God could give these people to the Son as a gift. And that is called the covenant of redemption. It's a heavenly, eternal covenant that the the persons of the Godhead decreed. And the Son of God was pleased to do the will of the Father. The greatest story told begins with God, whose plan from eternity is to redeem a people. Together with this decree was God's plan to keep his covenant promise through a series of lesser covenants that he would make with man throughout history. The first one is the covenant of works. You remember God made this covenant with Adam, who was at that time innocent and capable of choosing whether to obey God or not. The covenant was founded in God's grace, but it was conditional in Adam's obedience. The promise to Adam was that if he obeyed the Lord for an undisclosed period of time, he would live. But he would surely die if he disobeyed the Lord. Remember, life and death in this particular context has to do a lot more with just physical life and death, as we argued already. So if death points to eternal condemnation in this context, which, by the way, is the sentence that God levels against all of Adam's fallen progeny, right? Then life points to eternal life. Life Christians will experience in full someday in heaven, that kind of life. Had Adam obeyed, God would have granted him permission to eat from the tree of life and enjoy eternal life. Adam would eventually have experienced his full potential. Sadly, this wasn't the case. He disobeyed God. He died, and his descendants died with him. And that's, of course, you and I. The story sounds pretty bleak, the greatest story ever told. Really not so great, if you think about it, at least at this point. But thankfully, it doesn't end here. No, the greatest story ever told continues. It's actually against the backdrop of this condemnation that God introduces the hope of eternal life and discloses to the first couple, which stood before him condemned, what the Trinity had actually determined in eternity. Good news, Adam. God had great news for Adam. God makes another covenant. We're calling it the covenant of grace. Because God's grace is emphasized. It is by God's grace that people in history will be saved. By God's grace alone. This covenant of grace is really the same as the eternal covenant of redemption, only slightly modified. Whereas in eternity, God made the promise to Jesus to save a people, God now makes the promise to Adam and his descendants to redeem them. That's the only difference. And, of course, they would receive the promise of eternal life only in Christ. So there's the connection. In other words, Christ would still have to meet the conditions of salvation for Adam's godly line. We find this covenant in Genesis 3.15. God promises that the seed of the woman, which is prophesied um, here to, uh, to point to Christ, would crush the head of the serpent, that is Satan, and deliver God's chosen race from sin and Satan's death grip. Christ, the seed, would bruise, would be bruised, which really is a reference to his sacrificial death. It would be necessary for Messiah to spill his blood. 
but he would conquer death and he would rise again. Now, in order to teach Adam and Eve that sacrifice and the shedding of blood of, of Christ was necessary for the remission of sin, God sacrifices some animals, actually spilled their blood, and then to show them that their sins are as good as covered by the future blood of Messiah, their perfect substitute. God covers their nakedness with the very skins of the animals he sacrificed. So from this point on, each generation would be instructed in the gospel. And those who received it in each generation would be sure to go and pass it along to the next generation. The very gospel. The one that you and I know. And let me also point out that the ongoing struggle between Eve's ungodly seed and Satan would continue. And it continues to this day. And it will until Christ comes back. And it will continue for every unbeliever unless that person turns to Christ and trusts his work of deliverance and redemption. And that is the gospel. It was the gospel then with Adam and Eve, and it is the gospel today with us. But let's not lose the flow of the greatest story ever told. From, from this point on in history, God would begin to fulfill the promise of the covenant of grace that he made with Adam and his godly seed through future covenants, which we began to see with the next covenant. We're call, we called it the Noahic covenant. Since the days of Adam and Eve, much had gone wrong. While there was a godly seed, a godly line of believers, those who heard and believed the gospel that had been passed down from generation to generation, many of Eve's seed remained in their condemnation. They rejected the gospel message. And by the time of Genesis 6, we're told the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. So the Lord was sorry that he made mankind on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart, and then the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I have created from the face of the land, mankind and animals as well, and crawling things, and the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made, made them. But Noah found favor in his eyes. God must now punish sinful humanity because they have become so wicked, but... What of this covenant promise to Adam and Eve and, and Adam's godly seed? Well, God won't renege on his covenant promises, right? No, he won't. He makes a covenant with Noah, his family, and all humanity, and the animals that he saved from the destruction of, of, the, human, of, the, uh, of the flood, promising them that he will essentially preserve humanity until it comes to the end. When the New Testament tells us that God will actually bring fire next time around, not water. And he puts his sign of this covenant in the sky. It's the rainbow in order to remind us of this solemn promise. So the Noahic covenant, a universal one, this is unconditional. It means that it, its fulfillment depends on God's faithfulness alone. God will be faithful to preserve humanity to the end so that a godly seed from the woman would come to know his kindness, repent, and trust the gospel. That's how the Noahic covenant continues to fulfill further the covenant of grace. So 
What's the next? What's next in the greatest story ever told of salvation history? Another covenant, of course. We we know it as the Abrahamic covenant. And this is where we pick up in our actual study this morning. After some time, as the world begins to repopulate again, God streamlines the recipients of his grace by focusing on one man and his seed. That man was Abraham. The covenant that God makes with Abraham starts in Genesis 12, where in verse 3 we read that God promised to make Abraham the means of global spiritual blessing through the gospel. What a great promise. It says, and you and all the families of the earth will be blessed. Global spiritual blessing. Part of this redemption included receiving an inheritance. So in Genesis 15, God promises Abraham that he will give his descendants Canaan for an inheritance. Listen to verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Funny thing is, Abraham was childless. All this talk of descendants kind of made the promise no doubt hard to believe, certainly for, for Abraham and his wife. So when we get to chapter 17, God begins to fulfill this promise by giving Abraham a natural heir, that is, Isaac. He then restates his covenant with him, this time including Abraham's posterity as partakers. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you, to your descendants after you, the land where you will live as a stranger and the land of Canaan and an everlast- as an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Well, by the time we reach Genesis 22, where God gives the last installment of the promise, we see that Abraham proves his faith as genuine, you might remember, through the the whole testing of the sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham proves his, his loyalty to God, and it is unquestionable. So God now reiterates his covenant with Abraham in the fullest form here in Genesis 22. He says, beginning at verse 16, But myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand, which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There's the global initiative of God through the gospel to save from people from every tribe and nation. Now the part to focus on here is God's mention of Abraham's seed in verse 18. Verse 18. Because in verse 18, the mention of seed is singular. Before that, seed was plural, referring to Abraham's immediate seed, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then, of course, uh, the Israelites after that. But here in verse 18, it's singular. Only one is in view at this point, and that is Christ. It is through Abraham's 
one seed, that is Christ, that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So now the covenant extends beyond Abraham's immediate natural heirs, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, and eventually the nation of Israel to Messiah, the seed of Abraham, and not just to Messiah, but also to his posterity. Peter would later preach this very truth in Acts chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. We'll save that for later, but I, I want you to understand, this goes out to Messiah and his posterity. You might be saying, well, Jesus didn't have a physical seed. No, he didn't. That's right. His seed is spiritual. A multitude of spiritual children. We read in Isaiah 53, verse 10, speaking of Messiah, he shall see his seed. Paul also confirms that, God's ple- that God pledged these promises to Abraham and to his seed singular. If you look at Galatians chapter 3, starting in verses, uh, starting verse 16, I'll read to verse 19. It says, Now the promise... Promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as one would in referring to many, but rather as in referring to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Verse 17. What I'm saying is this. The the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Skip down to verse 19. Why the law then? It was added on account of of the violations having been ordered through angels and uh, the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made promise, Abrahamic covenant, was made to Christ as well, the seed of Abraham and Christ's posterity. So in the Abrahamic covenant, God promises to Abraham uh, and to his posterity, um, ultimately also to Messiah and to his spiritual posterity. So for example, God promised to Abraham's posterity land. As a, divine, as, as a divine inheritance, the land of Canaan. He promised a theocracy, which means that his relationship to them would be unique. I will be their God, they will be my people. He promised them the ability to produce an abundance of offspring. They would be more numerous than, the, than men can number. He promised peace and victory. That is, he gave them victory over the enemies of uh, 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 of Canaan, but also uh, and especially of Egypt, and then the conquest of the land. But the fullest fulfillment of this covenant extends and goes beyond this. Christ and his posterity are the ultimate recipients, which included not only Abraham and his descendants, but those who are born again after Christ. You see, since this is a covenant that is meant to be perpetuated, it is a or, or to perpetuate the covenant of grace, I should say, it must culminate in Christ. So says Paul in Galatians. And if this covenant promise 
is fulfilled in is fulfilled to the fullest or in the greatest way in Christ then the blessings of this covenant are fulfilled in a greater way in Christ as well this is the global initiative the promise of theocracy then must include messianic posterity through the redeemer so the church becomes god's theocratic society you're wondering about that? 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, Or what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Does that sound familiar? That's addressed to the church. God rules us, and he rules in us. There is also the promise of ability to produce an abundance of offspring so numerous that men cannot number. According to the, to the prophecy of Isaiah 53, Messiah will have numerous spiritual offspring. Verse 10 states that Messiah will see his offspring, and in verse 11 will justify many. The promise of spiritual peace and victory is stated in the birth narrative of Jesus in Luke 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, salvation from our enemies, and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God will save his people from Satan, from sin, from suffering, and from death. Finally, as the promise of, of, post, uh, of property or divine inheritance, the, co uh, the covenant promises to bless Abraham's messianic posterity with spiritual and eternal property through Messiah. It is promised to all the families of the earth through the gospel. Paul calls this a divine inheritance in, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him, Paul says, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a first installment of our inheritance in regard to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. When the Lord returns, we inherit eternal property. Are you following the storyline of the greatest story ever told? God, in his infinite love and grace, determines to redeem a people for himself. He sets the stage with the covenant of works. When, Adam's break, when Adam breaks it, God promises Messiah through whom he will accomplish the need for redemption. This great gospel news passes down from generation to generation, but the wickedness of the ungodly seed of Eve is so great that God must wipe them all out except eight souls. And through a new covenant continues to promise uh, continues the promise of redemption of Eve's godly seed by promising to preserve humanity that he might lead some by his kindness to repentance and be saved. No doubt many do, but God now focuses his efforts on one man Abraham through whom Messiah would come in order to extend his saving grace to people from every tribe and every nation of the world. Hopefully you are seeing that each of these new the, the, or each of the covenants that, that are added are based 
on, on, on the one previous and continues the one previous. Now, we advance 430 years from Abraham to a point in the story of redemption, the greatest story ever told, where God defines his relationship with Abraham's seed, defines it, which he has now multiplied, as God has promised he would, into a nation, the nation of Israel. And he makes a covenant with Israel and and, and he carries along the covenant of grace in Genesis 3, and he brings it closer to fulfillment with this next covenant. We turn our attention to the Mosaic covenant. Some call it the Sinaitic covenant. It's in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3, and, 3 through 6. Moses there states in a general way all the essential parts of this covenant. Notice, Moses is the mediator of it, along with angels, verse 3, and Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, and Moses went up to God. Moses is the mediator of this covenant. The partakers of the covenant is the house of Israel. goes on to say, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, this is what you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. They're the partakers. It was founded on God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. This is very important. Founded in redemption. Verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It was a conditional covenant that promised to bless obedience to God's commands and punish disobedience. It says in verse 5, Now if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Conditional. Finally, it carried forward the promise of messianic inheritance to a godly seed that we have seen in all the other covenants since the covenant of grace. Verse 6, And you shall be, my, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Finally, God ratifies this covenant with the house of Israel in Exodus 24. Moses took the book of the covenant, which, by the way, at that point was just the Ten Commandments, and by the time they get to Moab, Moses has added various and sundry laws, ceremonial laws, and so on. Book of Leviticus. It says, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it as the people listened, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, what you need to understand, in light of the fact that this covenant was conditional, is that God made this covenant with a redeemed people. It's very important you understand that. He made it with a redeemed people. Now, we know, of course, that many in the nation were not genuine worshipers, that they were, there was a mixture of true believers and false believers that would characterize the nation throughout her history, right up until the time that Messiah came on the scene. But though there were tares among the wheat, and maybe more tares than wheat at some points in the history of Israel, God nevertheless made this covenant, Mosaic Covenant, with a saved body of people, a remnant, no matter how small they were at the time. Okay? Mosaic Covenant, therefore, really laid out the conditions 
of communion between God and believers. He gave them moral law, the Ten Commandments, civil law to maintain them, and ceremonial laws to govern the sacrificial system and the priesthood. If they obeyed, they would prosper. If they disobeyed, they would suffer. It is all about what they needed to do in order to have God dwell in their midst. So this was a conditional covenant. God required a faith response to his spoken and written word. Now, by faith response, I mean that God expected obedience from the heart. From the heart. And obedience an obedience of faith from genuine worshipers. This is not about, or nor was it ever about, legalistic works of righteousness. The Mosaic Law was not about legalistic works of righteousness. The condition of this covenant defined how believers, how believing Israelites would live under a theocratic society. It was not about how unbelievers get right with God. Essentially, living under the Mosaic Covenant was all about true believers maintaining their sanctification so that a holy God could dwell in their midst. Later in Hebrews 9, we'll see that the writer explains that this covenant had regulations for divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. He means that God ordained the means to commune and fellowship with his people. They would worship him and honor him and commune with him through God's ordained institutions like the priesthood and the sacrificial system and God's ordinances. If Israel disregarded the Lord and his covenant, he would judge them severely, inflict curses on them, detailed in Deuteronomy 29, and eventually remove them from the land. Deuteronomy 4.26 I call heaven and earth as my witness against you today that you will certainly perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to take possession of it. You will not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. That, of course, is the condition of disobedience. And it happened. It happened just that way. We, we went through the book of Judges together. We know. Now, you, rem- you may remember that God eventually evicted them from the land because they disregarded the Sabbath, right? And the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. So while there were grand moments in Israel's history where God blessed the remnant because of their obedience, David and Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, and so on, for the most part, the nation as a whole failed to keep the conditions of the covenant. Now, God brought them back to the land. Yes, he did. He brought them back to the land. And and even if the post-exilic generations from Micah all the way down to the time of Messiah never violated the Mosaic Covenant again outwardly, even if that were true, we do know that inwardly most of them were spiritually dead. And they would reduce the Mosaic Covenant to nothing more than a set of rules and regulations, and and they would be very legalistically followed. They even imposed man-made rules, over 500 of them, so that in order to keep the people from violating God's rules, the the thinking was, if if you keep our rules, which are a hedge about the law, then you'll never violate the law. 
And at some point, the Pharisaical tradition was elevated above Scripture. Jesus points that out many times in the Gospels. Just, so then just the opposite happened. They did become legalistic. So when Messiah finally came, he indicted Israel, didn't he? He indicted them for being godless. John 1 verse 11 says, He came to his own, and his own did not accept him. So Israel really forfeited the blessings of the theocracy, of peace, of prosperity, of property, because they violated the conditions of the covenant. And as we'll see next time, Jesus fulfilled these conditions of the law and won back for God's redeemed the blessing of spiritual theocracy and peace and property. We come to a point now in this grand story where the Lord introduces one more covenant. One more. It came approximately 1,000 years before Jesus. Through, uh, Through salvation history, God has moved from the first couple to eight individuals, to one man, to one nation, all of which were stepping stones to Messiah, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, and the servant who replaced Israel. Now it is, the, it is necessary to qualify Messiah's role. You see, he's not only the savior of God's people, he is their ruler, their king, the Lord of lords. And to establish that truth, God makes a solemn promise to King David that his seed would sit on the throne forever and rule for eternity. We consider now the Davidic covenant. The Old Testament reference... um, that we're going to look at is Psalm 89, although it occurs in a few other places in the Old Testament. This is the classic and central passage. David is speaking in this psalm, and he speaks the words of God, verse 3, God speaking, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, I will establish your descendants forever and build up your throne to all generations. Now notice that God makes this covenant with David and his royal posterity, including Christ. I have sworn to my servant David, I will establish your descendants forever. The promise is in verse 4, and build up your throne to all generations. God began to fulfill this first in Solomon, and then through the, the Davidic dynasty that reigned over Judah, the godly kings. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 7, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because the covenant which he had made with David and because he had promised to give him a, give a lamp to him and his sons forever. That covenant promise was in Psalm 89, verse 3. Ultimately, David, I'm sorry, ultimately Christ, David's seed, would sit on the Davidic throne and rule. And God promises that the Davidic kingdom will last forever. Listen to 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. The Davidic covenant. The angel Gabriel would later confirm to Mary in private, that this will be her son Jesus. 
David's seed who sits on the throne. Luke 1, verses 31 to 33, the, the angel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom shall have no end. What Gabriel announced in private to Mary, Peter preaches in public to, the, to a Jewish, uh, Jewish audience in Acts 2. Beginning of verse 29, Brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. So because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. And he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. That's in Psalm 16. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David is Messiah. Can you see the connection? Can you see how the greatest story ever told begins to unfold in salvation history? Well, this is a great story. There's more, of course, and, and, and we'll see more of it next time. We'll jump back into Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. I want you to know that we're not going to look at all of salvation history or all of this greatest story ever told, but you know how it ends. This great story written by God himself in eternity past and produced at the expense of the blood of his Son is the story of redemption. It is the story of the Bible. It is very much our story, the story of Christians, we're all part of it. We're all proof of it and of his grand climax of the return of Christ to usher in the eternal state. We said at the beginning, if you remember, that this study, um, or the as we studied this at the very beginning, we said that redemption was not an afterthought with God, but rather part of his perfect will for the ages. Well, if that's true, then so were you. If you claim to be born again, you too were part of God's eternal plan for the ages. You were in his mind, the mind of God, back in eternity as well. He commanded his love on you and determined to save you from his wrath at a point in time in history, human history. That would be your conversion. The same goes for all believers who have ever lived and who will have ever lived. And from this great story comes, comes some, some equally great application for us. Let me close with just, <clears throat> just three. First of all, first great um, application, I think, is that you will, you will enhance your Bible reading and studying if you look at the Bible from the perspective of salvation history, from the perspective of covenant theology. It's about salvation history. There is a theme to the Bible. It's about how God plans to redeem a people for himself. That's really it. For his glory and, and, and for the praise of his son. If you understand that, then you will never read the Bible the same way again. Number two, 
You will deepen your devotion to Christ if you consider not only the Bible this way, but your life as well. That if you consider your life from the perspective of salvation history. In other words, your life is part of the story. As we said, think about it this way. God decreed an eternity past to bring about a great plan of redemption and then fulfill it in a progressive way from one covenant to the next so that you could experience conversion when you did. Your conversion is a testimony to God's plan. God has invested his son in your salvation so that you might invest in his kingdom. The more you appreciate what, has, what God has done for you, the more you will invest in his kingdom. The more you will see your life, not as something private and individual and personal, but rather as, as a part of a great plan that God has established for his glory and the benefit of his people. And it will engender a more aggressive faith in us. Number three, and finally, you will find God's loyal love and faithfulness to you, his chosen ones, to be your greatest motivation to live the Christian life. God's loyal love will be your greatest motivation to live the Christian life. One of the many characteristics of a study of covenant theology that I would highlight, because the Bible certainly highlights it, is God's loyal love and faithfulness to his covenant people. The particular Hebrew word that Old Testament writers use to capture the essence of God's loyal love to his people is chesed. Chesed. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross defines Chesed, this way in his three-volume work on the Psalms. Quote, the word means loyal love. It is a covenant word. It describes the faithful love that God has for those who are members of the covenant. It also is used for the expected loyal love that members of the covenant have for the Lord and for each other. It is often translated loving kindness, but it stresses more the faithfulness of that love. Loyal love. By the way, it is a technical term in the Psalter for God's love of his covenant people. To say it another way, this loyal love does not refer to a spontaneous, unmotivated kindness, but rather to behavior that comes out of a relationship between two parties that have rights and obligations such as marriage or a household. So when God is the one giving loyal love, then he gives it inside a covenant relationship only, only to covenant believers. God may be said to love the world in the same way that he gives common grace to unbelievers, but God loves his people differently, and it is a covenant love. This is chesed, a loyal love. David, in his famous 23rd, Psalm emphasizes the value of God's loyal love for those who are in the covenant relationship with him. He says, surely, in verse 6, God, God's loyal love will follow me all the days of my life, which means that God will continue to be faithful to me as my covenant God until I die. 
Solomon declares in 1 Kings 8.23 this, There is no God like you in heaven, above or on the earth beneath, keeping the covenant and showing loyal love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. According to the Psalms, God's loyal love brings redemption and guidance to his people, protection from enemies. It is the basis of his forgiveness of sins. It brings restoration to life. All this to say that God's loyal love to us, his covenant people, should drive us to a right response, to respond to God with piety, with faithful covenant acts. Hosea 6 calls believing saints to, for example, repent of their sin on the basis of God's loyal love for them. Verse 3, come, let us return to the Lord that we may live before him. Let's learn, let's press on to know the Lord, Hosea says. Isaiah used the word together with the righteous in Isaiah 57.1 to show that believers should display faithful covenant love just as God does. Well, beloved, you are in the mind of God in eternity past. And you will be with him in eternity. Meantime, how should we live? We should live as objects of God's covenant love that we are. And follow David's example in Psalm 89.1. I will sing of the loyal love of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make your faithfulness known with my mouth. Father, we're grateful for your goodness to us.